Welcome to the Central Christian Church Podcast. We pray this message helps you find and follow Jesus. If you would like to connect with us more, please visit us at centralsj.org. If you are a follower of Jesus today, are you a follower of Jesus today because God chose you to be or because you chose God? If you're not yet a follower of Jesus today, are you not yet a follower because you've chosen to reject God, or is it because God has chosen to to reject you? That's the topic that Paul's going to breach today as we study Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. But before we jump into that, I want to, one, welcome you. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard, how many of you think those Niners are going to do it today? Yeah? All right. How many, about those Lions? Any Lions? Hey, all right, all right. Uh, Imperfect people in progress here, okay? So a lot of grace, a lot of grace, a lot of grace. Oh, man. Um, Yeah, I'm excited, excited for the games. I'm not going to mention the other game, uh, because last time I did, uh, they lost to the Raiders, so I'm not doing that again. Um, Hey, before we dive in today, uh, also, this marks our Break Fast Sunday. If you have been with us, and uh, many of you have been participating in the 21 days of prayer and fasting, and uh, I don't know about you, but I was super grateful for a cup of coffee and some eggs this morning. It was awesome. Uh, But we would love to hear from you uh, if you participate in the fast. How's God been showing up in your life in the past 21 days? Or if you didn't participate in the fast, how's God been showing up in 2024? And, uh, And if God, you've been praying for something, believing for a breakthrough in an area of your life, you haven't experienced it yet. Man, we'd love to continue to pray for you. And so there's those prayer request cards in the seat backs in front of you. We'd love for you to fill that out, uh, whether it's something good or something like, nah, I really need God's help. Uh, We'd love to lock arms and pray with you in that regard. Then also on February 7th at our night of prayer and worship, we'll be sharing some some testimonies. We want to hear from you, the central family, what's God been doing in your life and encourage people in that way. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 9 as we continue our study through this amazing book. Uh, the book of Romans. We've been in this for several weeks. We will continue to be in Romans for several weeks. However, today we're going to do something that we have not yet done, and that is to take a, a chunk of the book of Romans in one in one message. And so typically, if you're new to Central, we typically try to break it down in, in one to five verses at a time. Today, we're going to take three chapters uh, at a time. And so uh, again, if you're new, uh, today might feel a little bit more like a Bible college lecture rather than a Sunday sermon. And so I hope you'll give us some grace in that regard. For some of you, like, that's awesome. Sign me up for that. Uh, For others of you, like, that's awful. What am I doing here? Uh, Whether you are, I want you to uh, keep keep showing up. Give us some grace here. We're going to take basically a 30,000 foot level view at these three amazing amazing chapters. And honestly, there's been much debate over these three chapters. Uh, Many scholars would say that Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 is what they would call a parenthetical section of scriptures. In other words, there's a parenthesis around it. So you could actually jump from Romans chapter 8 straight to Romans chapter 12. Uh, I would not land in that camp. I think there's a lot of valuable things for us to learn from these three chapters. However, it is a little bit technical. Uh, And so while I would enjoy a 12-week study on these three chapters, I know many of you uh, would not land in that camp. And so we're going to take, take it in one shot here today. One thing I love about Central, if you're new to Central, uh, Central is 85-year-old church, and we've, we've kind of anchored into and built our church around this, this quote from uh, St. Augustine, and that is this, in essentials, we have unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, 
charity, in all things love. So in other words, there's some things that we would hold as essential, things like salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone, that Jesus is, is the only way to God, that salvation is by grace through faith. Uh, we believe in the virgin birth. We believe that the Bible is the primary authority of faith and practice. And those things we would say are essential and we should be unified when it comes to those things. We should be in agreement on those things. Uh, however, there are some things that we would say are, are non, non-essential. And so some things that would be non-essentials would be things like uh, eschatology, or in other words, different views of end times. Uh, there are people here in the room that have a different view of end times than I do, and that's, and that's okay. Some people believe that Jesus is coming back before the tribulation. Uh, some people believe God's coming in the middle of the tribulation or after the tribulation, and others here don't even know what the tribulation is. And that's the beautiful thing about the church. And so we celebrate that. Uh, Church polity would be things that I would say are non-essential. Some believe that it should be a congregational-led church. Others believe elder-led church. Others believe pastoral-led church. I think all those models have strengths and weaknesses, and those would be non-essentials. Some would be uh, music, styles of music, Uh, whether it should be instruments on stage. There's literally been uh, divisions in the church, church splits, over whether it should be instruments on stage or not. And uh, you obviously know where we land on that, that camp. Uh, but we would say that's non-essential. Like, let's keep the main thing, the main thing. Uh, spiritual gifts for many people. Uh, some would say the spiritual gifts were uh, ended with the apostles. Uh, I, I wouldn't land in that camp. I think spiritual gifts are for today. Some people say uh, everyone should have a personal prayer language. Uh, other people would not say that. I, I think that is for today. Uh, but other people that really love God don't land there. And, uh, and I think that's a beautiful thing about the church. So that would be a non-essential. Let's have a conversation about that, but let's not create division around that. The nature of communion, the list could go on and on. All that to say, I would put this, this doctrine of an interpretation of election and predestination in that camp of non-essentials. And so you might have a differing view than me, and that's perfectly okay. Uh, we can ad- agree to disagree. And, uh, and I think I would say this as a caveat before we dive into, all of us reserve the right to get smarter. And so uh, my view of, of this doctrine today may not be the same view I have five years from now. Uh, because hopefully, like all of us, we're growing closer to Jesus. Our understanding of, of God's word is going to deepen. Uh, God's going to give us more insight, more revelation. And so, so where we are today doesn't necessarily mean that's where we're going to be for the rest of the rest of our, our lives. I would say this too. I remember in Bible college, uh, me and my roommates were having a great debate over this. They were on one side of this argument. I was on the other side and uh, they kind of got some friends together and we were in, meeting in this conference room at, in the library and, and they had their books and resources out and I had my books and resources out and I was, what about this and what about that? And, and we're going back and forth over this doctrine of election and predestination and And uh, one of our professors popped his head into this conference room and I assume was to commend us on our our being very studious and uh, studying outside of the class. And we tried to pull him in on this argument, this professor that we really respected. And we're like, what do you think? You'd be the deciding vote. And here's what he said. He said, boys, here's here's the deal. Uh, People a lot smarter than you have been arguing over this for over 2,000 years. And if they didn't figure it out, I don't think you are either. Why don't you just go preach Jesus? And he left the room. And so that's what I've tried to do throughout my life. Uh, But we land on Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, where we were forced uh, to confront some of these, these doctrinal issues. And so rather than skip over it, we're going to 
We're going to approach it. And so before we jump into the study again, another caveat, I just want to remind you of what Jesus said the main goal is. He said this in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. He's approached by this religious leader and he said this, what, teacher, Jesus, tell me what, what's, the greatest, what's the greatest commandment in all the law? Like in all the Bible, like could you just boil it all down for us? And here's what Jesus said. Your whole Bible boils down to this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And on this Sunday, can we just take a time out and let me ask you, how are you doing with that? How are you doing with just a heart that says, God, I just love you. And with all my mind, all my heart, all my soul, all that I am, I just want to pursue you. Because really nothing else matters. Jesus said, so not only is that a beautiful thing, it's, it's really the main thing. Uh, it's the first and greatest commandment. Then he says, the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says this, all the law and the prophets hinge on these two commandments, a love for God and a love for people. And how are you doing with that last one? How are you loving people? How are you extending grace to people? How, how are you, you, you approaching life and approaching people from this grace-filled posture? Are you loving people well? Uh, it's been said that confession is good for the soul, but bad for the reputation. And uh, so here goes. I, I was this week in a room full of people that I actually love and actually really like. And I had this thought enter my mind in that moment that I would rather be anywhere but there. Uh, I just wanted to leave the room and walk out because I didn't want to deal with people in that moment. I just wanted to go be by myself. And, um, and whenever I have that feeling, it lets me know that I'm redlining in some areas of my life that some things in my soul are a little bit off balance uh, because a deep love for God will result in a deep love for people. And so there's some things, and this week's just been a, a, a little bit bumpy for me. And so, so I just, I need to get away and process some things with God. But if, if you have a deep love for God and a deep love for people, that's really the main thing. And one of my favorite quotes, this is on my desk, I read it almost daily. It's by Johann Wolfgang Van Gogh, and he says this, things that matter most must never be at the mercy of things that matter least. Things that matter most must never be at the mercy of things that matter least. And so while I believe this doctrine is important, while I believe we should, we should have a thorough understanding of all scripture, including Romans 9, 10, 11, I just want to reframe for us here. The main thing, just have a deep love for God and have a deep love for people. That's the main thing. And let not that be at the mercy of some things that that matter least. So today will be an exercise of loving God with all our minds as we approach Romans 9, 10, and 11. So if you have your Bible, hopefully you're there, Romans 9. Um, if not, we have these notes, hopefully you'll follow along. Again, today's going to be a little bit more technical as we take, uh, take three chapters on. So I'm going to break it down by sections and uh, make some observations on each of these sections that Paul unpacks for us uh, through these amazing, amazing chapters. In the first section, if you're taking notes, here's where they begin. It talks about Paul's passion for Israel and all lost people. And we studied that last week, actually, in Romans 9, uh, verse 1 through 5. And, and Paul's heart, his heart, his passion, what drives him, what compels him, what motivates him is to help people find and follow Jesus. And we talked about that. Hopefully that's our passion as well. The second section here, though, that Paul impacts is basically have, have God, is a question, have God's promises to Israel failed? This whole section is really, has God rejected Israel or has Israel rejected God? And where are they at in that, in that camp? And so a question that Paul poses is have God's promises to Israel failed? 
And I think Paul makes a good case that no, they haven't. And we study that, Romans 9, verses 6 through 29. In the first part of that, though, Romans 9, 6 through 13, Paul maintains that God's promises to Israel have not failed because the promises were meant only for true Israel and not meant to include like everyone that was a descendant of Abraham, but rather people that were, were heirs of the promise. And that's a very technical term, but here's what I mean. He made this promise to Abraham. We read about it in Genesis 12, one through three, and here's what God promised Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Here's what he says. I, here's the promise. I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you and all people on earth will be blessed through you. Now to Romans 9, Paul's going to talk about that. People who are children of the promise and that's the promise. So here's what he says in verse 6. It is not as though God's word has failed. For, all that, uh, for not all who are descendants of Israel are Israel. So just because their lineage is through Israel, he's saying that's not who, who are people of, of the promise, nor because uh, they are descendants, are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not natural children who are God's children, but it is children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So it's not all children that are Abraham's heirs of the promise, it's people who walk in the faith that Abraham shared that are heirs of that promise. The second part of that is Romans 9, 14 through 29. And Paul points out that God has the right to do as he pleases to individuals and to nations. Like he's God, like he gets to call the shots and we, we, we don't. He has the right to reject Israel if they disobey. And he has the right to show mercy to those he wants to show mercy. And so when, God, when Paul talks about Gentiles, in a moment, he's going to talk about Gentiles. Gentiles are people that are non-Jews, people that are from other nations outside of Israel. So for majority of us here, uh, we would be in that camp. We're, we're Gentile people. We're not Israelites. For most of us, we are, we're, we're, we're Gentile people. And here's not, not gentle people, Gentile people. All right. Hopefully you're gentle too, though. Romans 9, 17 through 18 says this. For scripture says of Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I may display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens those he wants to harden. So at first earshot, that sounds like, well, maybe God just had Pharaoh uh, rise up so that he could kind of do what he wanted with Israel. And, and for some people, they would land in this camp where they say, they say yeah, so, so some people uh, God has created to be objects of wrath. Like he's just going to punish them. And that's kind of their lot in life. He's chosen them for that. He's elected them for that. While others have been elected to become children of God and inherit heaven. Uh, and so there's this, this trade-off, this dichotomy. And, and I think there's an interesting twist to that. And I think Pharaoh, they would use this as a proof text for that. Uh, but, but there's something interesting about Pharaoh I just want us to make, make note of. Before Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God, Pharaoh had a choice. He could obey God and do what God wanted him to do, or he could reject what God wanted him to do. And that's up to Pharaoh, and that's really up to you. That's up to me. All of us have that free will to understand what God wants us to do and take action on it or, or not. 
And so looking at Pharaoh, this, this first plague, so Pharaoh's this king of Egypt. Uh, Israelites are in bondage in Egypt. Uh, God sends a messenger, his name's Moses. And he says, hey, let my people go. And if you don't let my people go, Pharaoh, bad things are gonna happen. So he sends this first plague. And the first plague is that he turns the Nile River in Egypt to blood. And this would lead to economic ruin. It would lead to a, a healthcare crisis. I mean, the Nile River was the primary source of their economy. Their fish came from there. Their food came from there. Their drinking water came from there. They bathed in the Nile River. Like, like it was essential. And so turning the Nile River to blood would mean the, the economic ruin for, for Egypt. And so Pharaoh has this choice. He can choose to obey God and say, you know what? I'm going to let the people go like you've asked or not. And here's what, he, here's what he does. Exodus 7.22 says, but the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their magic art. So they were able to, to turn water into blood by divination, by, by witchcraft. Uh, but, the, but Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses or Aaron, just as the Lord said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not even take this to heart. So did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden his heart? By choosing to deliberately disobey God's clear commands and direction, it, it, it just hardens Pharaoh's heart and it hardens our heart, I would say, towards the things of God. But again, God is very gracious. He gives Pharaoh another opportunity and he, and he sends another plague. If you don't let my people go, bad things are going to happen. And so he does it again. Now it's frogs and frogs cover the land of Egypt. And so there's frog, like imagine this, you're sleeping at night and you got frogs jumping on your face. You go to take a sip of coffee and you got frogs in your mud, in your mug. You go to the toilet and like you're on the toilet and you got a frog. Like, like it's weird. It's awkward. It's a, it's a, that's the, what's happening in Egypt. There's frogs everywhere. I mean, if, have you ever caught a frog? What happens when you hold a frog in your hand? They pee on you. It's nasty. Not to mention like Pharaoh's wife or like, ah, I can't, there's a frog. You know, like I can imagine my wife like, geez, frogs everywhere. It's miserable. And so look at it. Roman, or Exodus 8, verse 8 through 10 says this. Uh, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, pray to the Lord. that the, Take the frogs away. I can't deal with it anymore. My people, uh, I'll let them go. Like, go make sacrifices. Just, just make the frogs disappear. And Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of these frogs except for those that will remain in the Nile. So, so Pharaoh, you get to choose. Pharaoh says, okay, I'll choose tomorrow, Pharaoh said. <laughs> what? Another night with the frogs, please. They're so delicious. Are you kidding me? I'd be like, how about yesterday? What are you talking about? Can we get rid of these frogs now? But Pharaoh hardens his heart again and says, no, no, let's, let's just put it off. I'll, I'll delay obedience again, right? And, and, and we, we see it in Pharaoh's life. We're like, yeah, for sure, Pharaoh, you're an idiot. But then we do the same thing, right? Like how many of us, we, we realize, man, my life is unmanageable. I know God has freedom from me on the other side of this addiction, but I'll stop, I'll stop tomorrow. I know my health is out of control and God has graciously given me warning signs like high blood pressure and I know my weight's not where I want it to be, but I'll make some changes, start eating healthy and exercising. Yeah, I'll do it tomorrow though. I really want to know God and walk in his ways, and, but I'm just so busy. So I'm going to start putting into practice the lifestyle of Jesus. I'm going to practice those ways tomorrow. 
Well, I know I should get baptized. I mean, the Bible's clear on it. Every follower of Jesus should be baptized after they surrender their life to Jesus. But I'm a, I mean, there's a game on this afternoon. It's a good hair day. I don't want to get my hair wet. So I'll, <laughs> I'll do that. I'll do that tomorrow, right? And we just, we just delay. We put it, put it off. And I, I'm just saying we learn from Pharaoh that's a very dangerous place to be. Here's what happens. Exodus 8, 12 through 15 says, after Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs that, that he brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did as Moses asked. The frogs died in houses, in the courtyards. They were piled in heaps and the land reeked of them. There are so many frogs. There's like piles of dead frogs now decaying everywhere. But when Pharaoh saw there was relief, he hardened his heart. It would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord said. So again, is it God hardening Pharaoh's heart or is Pharaoh hardening his own heart? But in the midst of Pharaoh's flat-out rebellion, God is so good and gracious to him still. And he gives Pharaoh another chance. He, he sends a third plague. And this time he sends Flies. Flies cover the land of Egypt, but God distinguishes his people so they're not on, on the people of God anymore, just on the Egyptians trying to get Moses or Pharaoh to, to turn. And we read about that, Exodus 8.30. It says, then Moses left Pharaoh and, and prayed to the Lord, uh, just as, as the Lord asked, uh, said to Moses asked. And so the, the, the flies left Pharaoh, his officials, and his people. Not a fly remained. But this time, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Then more plagues come, and every time God graciously gives Pharaoh an opportunity to obey, but Pharaoh refuses, and what's the result? Look at it in Exodus 9, 12. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses, Aaron, just as the Lord commanded. So again, back to the question from Romans 9, did God harden Pharaoh's heart, or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? And I think the right answer is yes. Yes. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And if we harden our hearts to the things of God, at first, a lot of times whenever it comes to sin and we know what God wants, our conscience is very sensitive to that. And we're like, oh, man, I really blew it. But the more we blow it over and over, it's like we begin to justify it. We begin to rationalize it. We begin to, to make peace with it. And now all of a sudden we sit in it and our heart becomes hard, and sometimes we don't even realize it. Which leads us to the second question. The third section is, has God rejected Israel? So, so did, did Israel reject God, or did God reject Israel? Has, has God rejected Israel? I think Paul makes a strong case that no, God has not rejected Israel, based on Romans 9, 30 through 10, 21. Paul's overarching theme is, what about Israel? What about Israel? I mean, if it, we've read Romans 1 through 8, and it's all about salvation and, and being chosen by God. And now Paul's addressing, well, yeah, Israel was chosen too, but what about, what about them? Did God reject them? And I think we're going to learn that, that God hasn't rejected Israel, but rather Israel has rejected God. And in this section, that's what Paul lays out, that God hasn't rejected Israel or any unbeliever uh, but rather they are choosing to reject God. The theme of this section is Israel's present rejection of Christ and his message. And their failure to accept and respond to Christ is not part of an unchanging plan, but the result of their own unbelief and disobedience. Here's what we read, Romans 10, 1 through 3. It says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God 
is for the Israelites, is that, that they'd be saved. And so Paul is like, has God rejected Israel? Like, he's like, no, I, I pray for Israel to be saved. You know, Paul thought that they were rejected forever. He wouldn't pray that. He would know, like, that's got part of God's plan. And so they're, they're hosed, and so i got to come to peace with that. But that's not what, what Paul says. He actually hopes that they come to faith in Jesus, that they are saved is what it says. Verse 2, For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, which, by the way, still happens. People would say, well, I might not, I'm not a follower of Jesus, but I think I'm good. You ask why they're good. Because I'm a good person. In other words, they've established this ethic, this code of conduct based on their own worldview that I meet these requirements, therefore I don't need, I don't need a savior. And that's what the Jewish people did. Their, their knowledge wasn't based on a righteousness that comes from God, but they sought their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Verse four, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So God did not force them to reject his plan. They chose to abandon him. Here's the interesting text, 2 Peter 3, 9. He's talking about the Lord's return. He says, hey, hey, God's not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness. No, but check this out. He's patient with you. Why? Because he doesn't want anyone to perish. But he wants everyone to come to repentance. God's heart, God's desires for everyone to know him is what the Bible says. So he's not, I'm choosing these people. I'm, I'm rejecting these people. No, he wants everyone to come to salvation in him. And some people just choose to reject him. So God hasn't rejected Israel or anyone else for that matter, but they're choosing to reject God. The fourth and final section in Romans chapter 11, so this whole chapter is basically summed up in this, this question, will God reject, uh, will Israel reject God forever? Will Israel reject God forever? And I think Paul makes a strong argument that no, Israel will not reject God forever. And so finally, Paul explains that Israel's rejection of God is only partial and temporary. There will always be, there always has been a remnant or a percentage of Jewish people, Israelites, who've embraced Jesus, who have, are followers of God, uh, even if the majority of the nation uh, does not. So this is broken down into sections. Uh, a is this. Uh, God hasn't rejected Israel, but has always had a remnant. So God has not rejected true Israel, but instead he has re remained faithful to this remnant that has remained faithful to him by accepting Christ. Here's what Paul says, Romans 11, 1 through 6. He says, I asked, did God reject his people? By no means. So Paul's saying, absolutely not. God has not rejected his people. He says, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul's like, if God's rejected Israel, I'm an Israelite. Like, I'm Jewish. So like, God hasn't, hasn't rejected me. He hasn't rejected Israel, all uh, the 12 disciples were from Israel. They were born in Israel. They were ministering in Israel. Jesus himself was a Jew, born and raised in Israel. So God clearly hasn't rejected Israel. Verse 2 says, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scriptures say in the passage about Elijah? So he appealed to, to the God of Israel. Lord, I'm, I've killed all the prophets. I've torn down the altars. Like I've done all this good stuff for you. I'm the only one left who really loves you. And now they're trying to kill me. Verse 4, but, but God says to him that I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so he's saying, there's, there's, I've always had people here, Elijah, like you're, you're over-dramatizing this. Verse 5 says, so to this present time, there remains a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it's no longer by works. 
If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So God says, hey, I've always had a people. I've always had a remnant. I'm not rejecting my people. There's been a a section that's been faithful, always has been, always will be. But there's coming a day when more people from Israel will become followers of Jesus. They haven't embraced Jesus as their Savior yet, but there's coming a day when they, they will. Have you ever, as a question, have you ever looked at something like a thousand times and just never seen it? Like, like you've looked at it over and over, but then you realize, I've, just, I've, been, I've seen it a thousand, I've just been looking at it the wrong way. Uh, like this, for example, like this FedEx logo. Uh, how many of you have seen the FedEx logo? How many of you have noticed the arrow in the FedEx logo? Like I see it all the time, but like there's intentional design here. Like it's, it's part of their brand. It's the things are moving. They're going to deliver your package on time. I, we can look at it a thousand times, just never, never see it. Or here's one I literally did not know until this week. Uh, Baskin Robbins in their logo. I just thought like pink and blue, that's part of their branding. But how many of you have seen the 31 in the B and the R? I didn't know. It was in front of me the whole time and I just didn't see it. It it's, represents 31 flavors of Baskin Robbins. I think I noticed it this week because we've been fasting and when you're hungry for anything, I'm like, yes, please. Wow, 31 flavors. I'll take any of them. It could be a grass flavor ice cream and I would love it. 31, I've seen it so many, I've just missed it. And here's the last one, Tostitos. And so think about this whenever you're ready for the 49ers game or for that other team that's playing this afternoon. How many of you have been to Super Bowl parties your whole life and you've never noticed two people with a chip dipping it in salsa right in their logo? It's been in front of us the whole time. We've just missed it. And so I think for all of us, God's always speaking. God is always reaching out. But so often we fail to see what is right in front of us. And one of the best prayers I think we can pray in 2024 is, God, help me to see what you're doing right in front of me. And I just haven't seen it yet. That's what's happened to Israel. God's been working throughout generations, and despite all the evidence, Israel has missed the Messiah. They missed Jesus. They missed what was clearly in front of them. Let's be people that pray, God, open my eyes to see where you're working. God, open my eyes to hear what you're saying. God, God help me to see what you see. And maybe it's been in front of me the whole time, and I've just been missing it, but God, I don't want to miss it anymore. Would you help me to see it? Second part of that, B, is an ongoing rejection of Jesus will result in opposition towards Jesus. Rejecting God's word, God's plan, it has consequences. And their unbelief and unfaithfulness towards God has allowed the majority of Israel to go their own way and become even more resistant to Christ. Romans 11, 7 through 10 says this. It says, what then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did? The others were hardened, as it is written. God has given them a spirit of stupor, uh, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear to this very day. As David said, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, a retribution to them. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs bent forever. Remember Pharaoh, how his heart grew hard towards the things of God. It was first Pharaoh was hardening in his heart. And after time, over and over, rejecting God's plan and what God wanted him to do, God says, okay, 
Well, you can have it your way. And then God begins to harden Pharaoh's heart, which serves to us today as a very sobering reminder as a nation, uh, but for sure as a people, as individuals that make up this great nation, to keep our heart tender to the things of God. When he speaks, we listen and we obey. Then third, C, is God always turns tragedy into opportunity. God has a way. I don't know, always understand it, but he does. He has a way of turning tragedy into opportunity. And that's what God does with Israel's offense. He turns it into this opportunity to spread radical grace to the entire world. And Paul talks about that. Romans 11, 11, 12 uh, through 12 says this. Again, I asked, did they stumble beyond recovery? Not at all. So Paul says, hey, is Israel, are they done forever? Will they ever turn back to God? Are they like, is God done with them? Have they, they stumbled so far, their hearts become so hard that they can't turn back to God? Paul says, no, n- not at all, which I think is important for us to know. In this chapter is where we get uh, a replacement theology, as it's called, and this, this idea that now God has replaced Israel with the church. And so now the church functions as Israel and the church inherits all the promises of Israel. And that has led to a whole lot of problems. Uh, anti-Semitism uh, during World War II, Nazi Germany, all, all those, that, that theology, that driving force behind that to massacre so many Jews and, and currently kind of being lived out in our reality today is this anti-Semitism that's based on this replacement theology, which I just don't think is biblical. Paul's saying Israel hasn't rejected uh, God so much that they can't turn back to God. So in other words, Paul believes that there's coming this day when Israel's heart as a nation will turn back to God. It says this, rather because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles, people like you and me, to make Israel envious so they can turn back. But their transgressions, if their transgression means riches for the world and their losses mean riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? So he says there's coming a day when they're going to come back. And then finally, D is salvation is by faith alone. And this is a long section of scripture, but this is important. So we're going to look at 11, uh, chapter 11, 13 through 24. And it says this, it says, I'm talking to, to you Gentiles inasmuch as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. And I take much of this ministry in the hope that I may arouse my own people to envy and save them. Verse 15, for if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For apart from uh, for part, part of the dough offered as first fruit is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, then so are the branches. So some branches were broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Do not boast over the other branches. In other words, don't say, well, I'm better than Israel because I, I they, they, yeah, they were heirs of the promise, but now I'm grafted in. They're rejected. He's saying, don't do that. He says, if you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. For you will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grant, grafted in. Granted, but, you were bro- but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. And that's what I just want to highlight right there. The, whole, the title of this message is you stand by faith. The reason you're right with God is because we stand by faith, which is a very sobering reminder for us to continue to walk in faith, to continue to to embrace Jesus by faith. It says, don't be ignorant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. 
Consider, therefore, the kindness and the sternness of God, sternness towards those who fell, but kindness towards you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if you do not persist in unbelief, if they don't persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut off, Uh, out of the olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted in and cultivated into the olive tree how much more readily will these natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree wow so unless you're like a work in a vineyard or you're a great horticulturalist Paul's analogy might not make a whole lot of sense but here's what he's saying the bottom line is that Israel and all unbelievers are cut off from God because of their unbelief And you and I experience salvation only by standing in faith in Jesus. Jews and everyone else who does not know God is only one decision away from experiencing salvation through Christ. And then lastly, God desires everyone to be saved, is what Paul closes with. Verse 30 through 32 says, Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, you've now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. So they too have now become disobedient in order that they may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy. For God has bound over all men to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So the question is always, God, am I right with you? Am I walking with you? Am I obedient to you and your word and what you're clearly asking me to do? How am I doing in my relationship with God? God, where am I at? God, do I love you with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, all my strength? God, how am I doing with loving my neighbor as myself? It's a good question. I would say this, if you're not right with God, in a moment we're going to have spiritual leaders down front. They'd be honored to pray with you, talk with you, help you with whatever you're processing. But don't leave this place feeling like, man, I'm in this stuck place. I don't feel like I'm right. I'm right with God. Then Paul closes when he thinks about the wisdom of God, how, how God is able to turn tragedy into opportunity, how how this whole idea of election and predestination, this infinite wisdom of God, how God choose, he chose you from the beginning, foundation of the world, the Bible says. He thinks about all this. He closes with this in Romans eleven thirty three. 33. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his past beyond tra- tracing out. Who has ever known the mind of the Lord or who has ever been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so some things like election, predestination, and the wisdom of God. Did God choose me or did I choose God? We entrust into the hands of our loving Heavenly Father and his infinite wisdom. We're not here to counsel him. We're just here to say, God, I just want to be right with you. Whether you choose me or I choose, I just want to be right with you. So God, give me a heart that's willing to listen, willing to obey, and willing to bend my knee to make you the ultimate authority in my life. And when you do, the Bible says you'll experience life that's truly life. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you so much.